All right. Well, um, Jenny, would you check the... I turned this up in the right monitor. And if that comes back down, that would be fantastic. Okay. So we're going to get started with how did life begin. Um, You'll notice there's a couple things I want to let you know. First, uh, Bruce said to make sure to let you all know uh, if you're planning on coming to the fall what are we calling that? Fall Festival? Fall fall Fellowship. That's right. If you're planning on coming to Fall Fellowship, do make sure that you bring uh, lawn chairs. You probably know that. You're used to that. Um, but uh, he said, there's only so many hay bales out there, so uh, they're, they're pretty much for the hay ride. So um, do bring lawn chairs and tell other people uh, to remember to bring theirs. If you've got extras, bring extras, and that way everybody makes sure we've got someplace to, to seat everybody. Um, other thing, you'll notice there's Several of the chairs kind of on the ends uh, have a couple half sheets of paper on them. Uh, It is not a test. I promised you there wouldn't be any of that nonsense. Um, Do enough of that through the week. What that is, is if somebody has a question that that you didn't feel like asking out loud or you just, it occurs to you at some point or whatever, and you want to jot that question down, um, I'll grab all those up. And one of these days we'll do like a Q and A. Um, I'm still happy to answer questions at the end. Uh, depending on how long people want to stick around and what I can answer off the top of my head. But um, if you've got a question, you want to write that down, I will absolutely handle those on a future date because I'm sure we'll do something like this again sometime. Okay, so let's get into how did life begin. We've talked about how did the universe get here last time, and so now we want to talk about how did the life on this planet get here. So that's what we want to look at. Basically, uh, right now, there are about seven different theories that naturalists propose for how uh, life got here. The top six are really, for the most part, the same story, just in a different wrapper. Um, A lot of times, literally, like the environment is just a little bit different, and that's really all it is. So we're going to go through, we're not going to go through these all individually, but we can knock out the first, oh, four in one shot. So we'll jump right into the Miller-Urey experiment, which of course everybody here is familiar with, right? You've all heard of, no, I'm just kidding. Um, This was in 1952, I think, 1952, 1953. Um, Two guys named Miller and Urey, I believe, that would make sense. Uh, They came up with this idea. So we know that life had to come from somewhere. And if you're not willing to accept that it came from God, then it's a pretty big stretch. So where did life come from? Supposedly, it has to be uh, basic parts that sort of had some sort of like a chemical reaction, and then that chemical reaction eventually became a living organism. And so they have to figure out, well, where does that chemical reaction happen? How does it happen? What's involved? And so they had to think, what would the universe have been like at the you know, whatever, the dawn of time, whatever you want to call it. And so they proposed that maybe our atmosphere was made out of ammonia and methane and hydrogen, and I'm guessing that they chose those particular gases because they see them in abundance in the universe, uh, at least hydrogen. There's a lot of hydrogen in the universe. Um, they know that the planet's really hot, so probably, so methane's likely. Um, and then also, I'm guessing that when you look at the building blocks of life, amino acids and proteins, you find certain elements in large numbers, and so it makes sense to start with chemicals that have a lot of those elements in them. Or, you know, if I set this on fire, it's going to produce oxygen and, you know, 
carbon or whatever, and then those will react. You know, it's probably, they probably set it up conveniently. But anyway, here's what happens. So they've got water vapor that they're, they're, they've got a little Bunsen burner going and water's coming up and vaporizing. And they've got the ammonia and methane and hydrogen gas in this chamber. And then they, a little electric spark to that and see what happens. And, you know, several hundred iterations of it. They finally get a reaction to form and little chemical reactions start happening and they produce amino acids, which that may not mean much to you. An amino acid doesn't really mean much, but a bunch of amino acids in a chain uh, forms a peptide and then peptides are basically the Lego blocks that you need to make proteins and proteins could form a lot of different things, different living tissues, DNA eventually, you know, would be the thought there. So really what you have is pieces of pieces of pieces of maybe living stuff. I was thinking about this this afternoon. I was kind of puzzling over how to, how to say this. It's almost as if they found, it's like you're out, I don't know, metal detecting or something, and you find some screws, and you're like, oh, or, or bolts maybe be, be better, you know, bolts, and there's a bolt over here, and there's a nut over here, and, you know, a couple acres on the other side, and then on the other side of the state, you find, like, a discarded bottle of engine oil, and you're like, oh, there's, this is where, this is how cars happen, you know, like, I have all the building blocks for cars. It's like, okay, well, it, in a matter of speaking, that's kind of what we're saying. If you kind of want to make an illustration that's, that kind of is the same thing. Having a few amino acids, he, he identified five in that first experiment. They now think there was as many as 22. But still, you're talking about the equivalent of a few screws and some motor oil and then saying, well, that's how cars came to be. And they don't, they're not, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. They're not saying this is an end-all, be-all covers all the bases description of how life happened, but it is pretty cool if you're looking for an experiment that's gonna confirm how life started and you just pop a few gases in a chamber and, pfft, and you get amino acids, that's pretty cool. Like that makes you think, oh, I'm on to something. Let's do this over and over and over again and eventually we'll figure it out. And so that's what they did over and over and over again, but they didn't figure anything out because it doesn't go anywhere. You get, you get some amino acids, and if you let the reaction go for even a fraction of a second, it all dies, and it turns into like this tarry mess that is anything but alive. But, you know, theoretically, they're like, well, we're on to something. Um, 50 years later, still haven't found what they're on to, right? And so that's why all these other theories come along. So... The problem with the, the original experiment is, yeah, we've got a couple of amino acids, but the environment is hostile. And so they die really, really fast. And it doesn't really, and I say die, they become unreactive. They weren't alive. They were never alive. They become unreactive really, really fast. So we need an environment where they can be more reactive. What if it happened in clay? Like little separate pools. Like what if it was clay that looked like a golf ball? And there were like all these little bitty pockets. And this one and this one could form separately, but then maybe later when it's convenient, get together. Because if they get together too fast, it all dies. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that you have to take into consideration. What if it happened around a deep sea hydrothermal vent? What if it happened in a frozen environment where because it's like a, 
uh, cryogenic chamber, it slows the reaction down and buys us more time to get all the pieces in place. So there's all these theories, but none of them actually amount to anything more than some reactions that quickly just kind of fizzle out. Because of that, we've got other things, uh, scientists have come up with other propositions that, well, maybe the reason why this thing isn't working out is because we're trying to figure out how DNA was formed and we're looking in the wrong place. We should be looking for where did RNA form because that's simpler. And then maybe once RNA popped up, then that makes the environment for DNA possible. So, you know, all this stuff, I don't fully understand it myself either. So if you're like, I don't know what the difference between DNA and RNA is. Yeah, it's been a while since I had biology class either. But apparently, it's a little bit more viable that RNA came first. Um, maybe it's just, maybe that's not it. Maybe it's not DNA. Maybe it's not RNA. Maybe it's something even simpler. Maybe if there were these just little, I don't know, small molecules, maybe that's what we need. Maybe there's finer building blocks of life that we haven't really looked for yet. And this is all the scientific perspective. They keep breaking it down into simpler parts because they still haven't found an explanation that really gets you where you need to go. I once read a pamphlet by a guy. I tried translating it into modern English so I could share it with people. And then I gave the pamphlet to somebody and I never got it back. And that's just as well because it was really a snoozer. But there was a guy who was a, uh, a chemist. No, he was a physicist. He was a physicist. And he decided, like a lot of people do, to try to prove the, the creation uh, explanation wrong. And he sat down to work out the probability of life originating from a chemical process. Just like, well, okay, I know the likelihood of this to form and the likelihood of this to form. What's the likelihood that those two things would get together to form this? And you get enough parts to actually get somewhere. And he ended up convincing himself that it must have been God because the probability was so insanely small that it's beyond any reason to suggest that it could have happened that way. When you really get to looking, it's just unreasonable that it could happen that way. So now, because it's so unreasonable, most scientists, including our favorite science guy, Bill Nye, I don't know if you grew up watching Bill Nye the Science Guy, if you know who that is, uh, and now the guy that's on TV all the time is, uh, oh, I can't say his name, um, I put him in the book. His name's in there somewhere. Anyway, all your popular scientists now have started to move on to this other theory because none of this works, and that is what we call panspermia, which is that the building blocks of life have arrived here from some other place. Pan meaning all over the place. So it's like the seeds of life must have come from somewhere else. Maybe that's the explanation. The reason why we can't get an experiment pulled off is because we just don't have the right conditions. That's what scientists are saying. So maybe the conditions were right somewhere else and a, a, a little cluster of bacteria hitched a ride on a meteor or something and cruised through the vast inhospitable nothingness of space for however many millions of years that took and then survived entry into our atmosphere at like a bajillion degrees and then crashed into the ground and luckily found a hospitable environment to it's silly and frankly it does what a lot of these scientific explanations we've seen do which is kick the can down the road <laughs> right uh it's like congress trying to set a budget <laughs> which is we eh, we'll get it later 
<laughs> you know, and then they come up on it again. It's like, well, we'll get it later. And really, that's what we're doing. We don't, science doesn't have a good explanation, so we'll just move to somewhere else. Well, but you're still not explaining where, how does life get started. Well, it happened somewhere else. Okay, fine. How did it happen somewhere else? Well, we don't know that. Right. And that's it. Don't know. None of these explanations make any good sense. What makes good sense is that some intelligent being created it. It is beyond unreasonable uh, to think that any of these things could happen. Here's some scientists who are a lot smarter than any of us, probably, uh, basically telling you what I just told you. Um, this whole molecule to living cell transition is really a jump of fantastic dimensions, which lies beyond testable hypothesis. There's nothing science can do to really produce an experiment that's going to show you how it was done. The available facts just don't provide a basis for postulating that cells arose on this planet. So a biochemist, some smart dude who's in the Institute for Enzyme Research in Cambridge, uh, and then also Columbia University, and also the University of Wisconsin-Madison said, you know, it, probably, it just seems so unlikely it happened on Earth, it must have happened somewhere else. Here's another one. I like this one. I just skip down to the bottom of this quote. This is Dr. Francis Crick, who is an atheist, who is a molecular biologist and a neuroscientist and a Nobel Prize laureate, among other things. Uh, he was one of the people who discovered DNA. He's kind of a big deal, I guess. And he says, an honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. I'd say it is one by any standard. Even if you're willing to accept this chemical origin, it would be a miracle anyway, wouldn't it? I mean, I think it would be. Uh, I, I would just say it's easier to say it just was a miracle and that God did it. Here's OJ. I saw Robert Shapiro's name here and I was like, that Robert Shapiro? No, not that Robert. If those of you old enough to remember the uh, OJ Simpson trial anyway. Um, why need the, I like this quote, Robert Shapiro, professor uh, emeritus at, of chemistry at New York University, said this, why does the event have to be probable? We can just stare at the odds, shrug, and note with thanks how lucky we were. After all, improbable events happen all the time. That's what we got, people. That's the scientific explanation. Uh, I don't know, just Wow. Pretty crazy, huh? <laughs> so let's move on to topic B. You know, like, she didn't really answer the question. Okay, the question can't be answered. That's fine. Nobody can answer the question. How did life get here? We, we don't know. Yeah, right, that's about what it sounds like. Uh, in the beginning, God, not any less reasonable than in the beginning, whatever else, right? It, it's, all, it, it's just as good an explanation. It's not any less unreasonable. In fact, it's more reasonable, I think. Uh, another little tidbit I'd like to throw in here while I'm on this subject, because I'm about to move to a different one. If you thought, origin of life, man, you really covered that quick. I did, because our explanation is simple. In the beginning, God, right? You know, from the dust of earth created he man, and rib of man created woman, spoke all the animals into existence. Really simple, really simple. And you know it, so I don't even have to tell you about it. The scientific explanation is so thin, there just isn't anything to say. We have this chemical reaction thing we did. It doesn't really work, but it gives you the idea. 
but it probably didn't happen that way. So probably just life just showed up on an asteroid. Cool, gotcha. So you don't have an answer, cool, okay. So that means the origin of life thing goes real fast. It really just, science doesn't have much to say and I don't need to say much because God just did it. But before we completely leave the concept, this whole man came from a monkey or a sperm whale came from a chicken salad sandwich or whatever it is, uh, there are some things that do pop up that make you wonder and maybe you'd trip over it, you'd see this and say, wait a minute, how does that fit with what Matt's talking about? Uh, One of those things that kind of trips people up and it gives them uh, a leg room for evolution to exist is something they're called vestigial organs. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but it, you know, something that's vestigial means it's, it's old, it's not needed anymore. And so if you look at this diagram here up on the screen, this is supposed to be the, the, the critter on top is supposed to be some crossover between a land animal and a whale because evolutionary theory says that fish evolved into land animals, which became mammals. But because whales are mammals, one of those critters had to crawl back into the water and turn into a whale. Not crazy at all, right? This is a perfectly scientific explanation. Um, So there should be some transition fossils and all this kind of stuff to show us land critters turning into whales. And so they look at a baleen whale, which is the diagram at the bottom. And you see, so to be clear, diagram at the top is totally made up. No one's ever seen whatever that half manatee, whale, whale alligator, whatever it is. (laughs) Nobody's ever seen that. That's totally scientific conjecture. But notice it's got a little back leg. It's like a tadpole that's turning into a frog, right? It's got that little back leg that it doesn't need anymore. When I was a land animal, I had this little leg and now I don't need it. Okay, and then we look at a baleen whale and you see in the little pink circle, there's this little thing, little bone. And it's almost like a tiny leg, but you can't even see it from the outside. If you look at a baleen whale, you'll never see this thing. You have to see a dead one to even know that it's there. And for a long time, scientists said, oh, see, there you go, proof of evolution. That's a, it used to be a leg and it got smaller and here in a few thousand years or a million years, that little leg won't even be there anymore. Proof of evolution, there you go. You needed proof, there it is. Here's the problem. That's not what that is. It has a purpose, it has a function. We just didn't know what it was. And without getting real graphic, making new baleen whales is slippery business. And that's what that's for. It's to hold on. Uh, That's all I'll say about that. It has a function. Um, See also, if you want to think about more vestal organs, there's a lot of them out there. Uh, But in our own bodies, the human appendix for a lot of time was thought of as, yeah, you don't even need that. Um, We'll just trim that out. You know, while we're in there doing something else, we'll just go ahead and take that appendix out. You don't need it anyway. The appendix has a function, and we know what it is. And not only did we think, oh, that's a vestigial organ, you don't need that anymore. But then they got to thinking, oh, well, back millions of years ago when man subsisted on a diet of leaves or something, that was an important part, and they they say it like it's true, like that was an important part of digestion, almost like a cow has multiple stomachs, like we had extra intestine for eating plant material or something. They come up with these weird explanations. We know what the appendix is for now. When you get really, really sick and you get like diarrhea or something like that, it completely clears out 
the good, healthy gut bacteria that you need in your digestive tract. If you don't have good, healthy gut bacteria, you can't properly digest your food and get energy from it. And today, if you get really sick, we give you an antibiotic, it wipes out your gut bacteria, but then we give you, we can give you a probiotic or you can eat yogurt or you can, you know, there's all these different things you can do to restore that gut bacteria. God gave you a natural built-in gut bacteria incubator, and that's what an appendix is. And I had a quote on my old presentation of a doctor saying that, but just, it, that's what it is. You can just believe me, I've looked it up. There's a little, it's kind of closed off from the rest of your large intestine, and bacteria gets in there and lives, and then after you're really sick, your intestine can repopulate from that little thing. And the reason why appendixes sometimes get inflamed and need to be removed is because they're full of bacteria! That's what they're for. Sometimes it doesn't work right, but that's what it's for. It's not a vestigial organ from some bygone evolutionary phase of mankind. We just didn't know what it, we're so cocky that we know what everything is. Oh, that's what that, oh, that's what that is. You don't know anything, none of us do. And then one day we figure it out. Okay, let's talk about cavemen because cavemen are fun, right? They make good Geico commercials anyway. Got that going for us. Okay. How do cavemen fit into the Bible? First off, why are there got to be cavemen? You ever seen one? I mean, you may have met some people who make you think that they did exist or they do exist. Um, why do we think that there were cavemen? Okay, so the reason why the scientific community thinks that there are cavemen, the A number one reason is at the bottom of the list here, and that is if man came from a monkey, then there had to have been a dumb person who's just mostly monkey at some point, right? We were... We were dark and hairy, and, <laughs> and then slowly we got more upright, and then the hair fell off, and then we got, I don't know, lighter-skinned and less hairy in some cases. I heard some giggles over there. It's like, okay, maybe, maybe the hair didn't all come off. Um, so if man had originated from an ape, you need a caveman. But we don't think man originated from an ape. We think man was created by God. Day one, able to walk and talk and probably... Do algebra or something. Ugh. Anyway, um, why, why else would we think that cavemen might have existed? We find art in caves, which implies man was there. We find trash in caves, not Miller Lite beer cans, although we, they probably do find those in caves, but like old-fashioned trash, pottery, broken pottery shards and bits of animal bone that clearly have marks that they were butchered. They didn't critter just didn't walk in there and die. It was cut by a tool. You know, we find things like that in caves. Um, remains of human beings in caves. Skulls that don't look like a modern human skull. And then, of course, artifacts in certain levels of the ground, which we'll get to why certain levels of the ground matter later tonight. But that's why they think cavemen existed. I don't think cavemen ever existed. Well, I think some unintelligent human beings with different shaped skulls probably did exist at some point, but after God created intelligent man and people split up around the world, and I mean, you get enough inbreeding in a small population, all kinds of crazy mutations can happen, and I wouldn't at all be surprised to find that people on different parts of the planet at different periods of time looked different, had different bone structure, and that's not weird at all. Um, did you know... Fun fact, I was not planning on including this, but it just popped up in my mind. If we came from monkeys, we had to start small and get bigger. 
I mean, that stands to reason, right? Monkeys are not as big as people. So it's weird. We don't find small human skeletons. We do find really big ones, like giants, like what's in the Bible. They do dig those up. Now, they do dig up monkeys that don't look like monkeys we have today. They do dig up people that don't look like people today, but they don't dig up anything that's a clear link between the two, and we'll look at that in just a minute. So uh, let's get into this a little bit. On the left is a Neanderthal skull. Neanderthal is supposed to be, or I'm sorry, Neanderthal, they're saying now on the Discovery Channel. You got to keep up with the pronunciations to be cool. Um, Neanderthal is the most modern version of human that's not fully human, supposedly. Now, I don't buy that, but I'm just saying, this is what the going theory is. So if you look at the Neanderthal skull, they supposedly lived from 400,000 years ago to 40,000 years ago. On the far right here, you see a modern human skull. There are some differences. In the middle there, if you were just digging and you dug up a Neanderthal skull and you knew what it was, you say, oh, it's a Neanderthal skull. And then, you know, you've got a modern human skull because of course you do, because everybody keeps a skull around, right? I know I do, just for conversation. Uh, and then someday you dig up this other skull, this one in the middle, you might be tempted to look at that and say, ooh, I found a missing link. I found a transitional form. It kind of looks like a blend between the skull on the left and the skull on the right. Because look, I don't have a laser pointer. I told my wife I didn't need that. No, no, just wait. I was wrong. <laughs> Brownie points. I told it in front of all of you. She was right and I was wrong. Um, okay, notice the brow right above the eyes on that Neanderthal is kind of like jutted out a little bit. And you also notice the jaw is a little different. It kind of is forward. The eye sockets are a little different. And the cranium doesn't have as much room for a brain. Modern human has a lot more brain room, does not have a brow ridge, jaw looks different. In the middle, that skull in the middle has the prominent brow, like the Neanderthal. It has the jaw jutting forward, like the Neanderthal. It has more cranium space than the Neanderthal, but less than the modern human. Hey, there you go. Transition fossil, right? Nope, that's an aboriginal Australian. That means like native Australian, if you don't know what an aborigine is. We would call them here Indians like the Indians of Australia. And they're modern. They're human beings, like we are, except they're from Australia. They're a modern person. Their skull looks different than your skull. How come? Because they don't live here. And they really did a good job of not living where other people were living. I mean, Australia was kind of its own crazy place for a long time. And so their bones bear that. They were not intermarrying with other populations. So they kind of have a more unique background. And there's other places on earth where the bone structure of human beings looks a little different because they were more isolated. We've all intermarried with each other for so long, it's all turning the same. Pretty soon we're all gonna be a beigey brown with brown hair and like brown eyes and we're all gonna speak English apparently. Uh, that's coming, okay? That's a chimpanzee. That is a very different skull. 
The difference between the Neanderthal and the Aboriginal Australian and the modern human, when you realize the Aboriginal Australian is a modern human, you realize there really isn't a big difference, but there's a dadgum big difference between a human being and a chimpanzee or any other kind of ape. And I picked that picture because it's, you know, conveniently cantered at the same angle and was easy to make the background transparent so it looks like it matches. You really can't tell how different that skull is from this picture, which is why I have more pictures. Look at the jaw structure. This is what a human upper dental looks like versus the ape. Now that's a big difference. Look at the side profile of the skull. That snout thing the back of the skull, the brow ridge, it's so, so different than a human skull. We have all these things, and they're supposed to be these pre-human, more ape-like versions of humans. But when you really look at the bones, they're not much different than a modern human. It's a modern human that just was an isolated pocket. And yeah, maybe some of them had small craniums and really small brains because they you know, interbred in this tiny little pocket population, that would not surprise me at all. What would surprise me is to find a half monkey, half person. And you know what? Have not found one of those. One of the famous ones that was supposed to be the half monkey, if you see between the top left skull on black, the chimp, and the human, is the Australopithecus africanus, which is also known as Lucy. Lucy is supposed to be a missing link transition fossil. Um, there's a video I cut from the presentation for tonight, but um, there's a, a video of them bragging about how they put the whole Lucy puzzle together, that Lucy was half monkey and half person. And what they find is that Lucy is a chimp, by the way. Lucy is a chimpanzee. She's a large chimpanzee. Um, she walked like this, like chimpanzees do. Um, in order to make her appear to be an upright humanoid, they corrected her pelvis. And this is, the video clip is like from Smithsonian or something like that, and they showed it on PBS, and it was like this kind of bragging about, oh, this, this clever doctor, he was so smart that when they dug up this hip and they realized, well, that can't be right, he fixed it. And so he took a mold of the hip, and then he broke the hip, and then he put it back together the way it should have been to make Lucy an upright walking creature. Well, good. I mean, all you had to do was break the hip and replaster it and add some stuff and take some stuff. I mean, that makes sense, right? That's good. Now we know where people came from. Okay, that seems a little bit of a stretch to me. Uh, here's some other things that we know about Neanderthals. We're finding more stuff out all the time. So the Neanderthal is like, the, the version of man that's closest to the modern human, according to the naturalist scientific perspective. But here's what we know about the Neanderthal. They had totally modern burials. They created like elaborate sets for burial. When they buried somebody, they, they, there were jewelry with them. There was ornamentation. They clearly had some kind of a ceremony. Never seen a monkey do that. They built habitats. We call them cavemen, but they built houses. We have evidence of that. 
They had complex tools. They butchered carcasses because where you find Neanderthal bones, you find butchered animals. You can see where the tools hit the bones. Um, they now know that uh, Neanderthals used, they found stuff in their teeth that indicates that they used plants for their medicinal properties. So they knew if I have pain and I eat that, the pain goes away. That sounds pretty smart. Monkeys don't do that. Human beings do that because they're smart. Go back a little further, supposedly between 40,000 and 10,000 years ago is the Cro-Magnon man. You, I put him between the chimp and the Aboriginal Australian there, just keep swapping that skull out. Cro-Magnon man is supposed to be a, an even earlier version of caveman. But again, with Cro-Magnon man remains, we find woven baskets, paintings of moon phases, heavily ornamented tools like this fishing spear that you see here, uh, jewelry, there's evidence that they had domesticated animals, including dogs. This is a carving that they found with Cro-Magnon Man. Never seen a monkey in the zoo do that. Leave a monkey with a log, they never carve a bear. So that's interesting. Homo erectus. Again, supposedly our oldest ancestor like two million years ago. But here's what we find with Homo erectus uh, remains. Stone tools, butchered carcasses, evidence that they built boats. And the reason why we have that evidence is because they find the same kinds of humanoids, Cro-Magnon man, whatever, or uh, Homo erectus, skeletons, all over all these different islands in the Pacific. Well, how did they get there? Hmm, I wonder. By a boat. I always tell the kids on the first day of American history, you'll hear this stuff about like a bearing land bridge and human beings had to come from... Russia on, a, on an ice bridge over into America. Why? Why didn't they just build a boat? Is it unreasonable to think they just built a boat? You know why they didn't build a boat? Why the historic explanation has never been they built a boat? Because we're supposed to be better than man was thousands of years ago. We're supposed to be smarter. They couldn't have built a boat and traveled all the way across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, I think they could. Have you noticed there's some striking similarities between Native Americans and people from like Pacific Islands. Like they have brown skin and black hair and smooth eyelids. Yeah, I don't think they came from Russia. I think they came from like islands off the coast of Asia on a boat. That would make sense. It's probably where they came from. And uh, Homo erectus probably was part of that population. And yeah, their skulls look quite a bit different, but they don't look chimp different. They look like a little different human different. And if they were all living on little islands in the Pacific, that does not surprise me. Very small breeding population, right? Uh, despite the skull's appearance, and let's admit it, the Homo erectus skull is a lot different than modern humans. I admit that, but check this out. The right is a chimpanzee. The middle is like one of us with our skin off. That's real naked. And on the left is Homo erectus. They find skeletons of Homo erectus ranging from four foot nine to six foot one. That's like Napoleon to George Washington. Modern human, average five six, right? Smack dab in the middle. So the same, in other words. Chimpanzees are three foot eight. Notice the hip on a chimp how big and long that hip is versus the hip of the human and the hip of the 
uh, Homo erectus. That's why they had to break Lucy's hip, because that's a big problem for this transition from monkey to man. That hip is a big problem, because monkey hips are really long, because their bodies are made to walk like this. They can stand like this for a little bit, but they go right back down because that's a pretty uncomfortable posture. Just like it's not super comfortable for me to go around like this. That's why I don't do that. Uh, so when you really get to looking at it, if all they show you is the skulls, okay. But when you really get to looking a little deeper, it just doesn't make sense. Caveman? No caveman. Don't need a caveman. Was there a man who wasn't real bright, who lived in a cave, who had a smaller brain and went, uh, and hit some chick over the head with a stick and drug her back to his cave? Probably. But thousands of years after Adam, right? Like somebody who was stuck in some pocket where they just didn't get out much. And there was a lot of mutations caused by probably interbreeding an unhealthy diet and things like that. Some recent scientific breakthroughs, uh, cavemen were better at illustrating animals than artists today. I read that article, pretty interesting. When you look at cave paintings of the way, they, they'll often show like a hunting party going after a critter and the critter is on the run. Uh, the very first movie ever made, the guy who invented the motion picture camera did it to win a bet. Is anybody surprised? Uh, the bet was, I bet when a horse is running, all four feet are off the ground at one point. And another guy's like, nah, there's at least one foot on the ground all the time. So they invented a video camera and filmed a horse running to prove, yes, indeed, there is a point at which all four feet are off the ground. When we draw an animal on the run, we tend to draw it a certain way. But when cavemen, cavemen, I put in big quotes, draw animals on the run, they draw animals with their feet in positions that are actually biologically appropriate because they watched animals on the run a lot and they knew all about it because that was their whole life. And when they painted them, they painted them accurately because they were very intelligent. They were not dumb cavemen. They were really smart people just like you and me who just had access to less stuff. Prehistoric aspirin found in Neanderthal's teeth. In other words, using plants for medicine. Um, tools solve stone age mystery. Cavemen were smarter than we thought. I'm not surprised. Not at all, because I don't think cavemen were a thing. Okay, so spoiler alert, cavemen, no cavemen. Dinosaurs, dinosaurs are real. We have bones for those. We know that they're real. Okay, so we got to account for that, because if you open up the Old Testament, nowhere do you see dinosaur. Dinosaur wasn't invented, the term, until the late 1800s. So yeah, it's not in the Bible. Let's look at this. Okay, so what's the problem? Why do we even need to bring up dinosaurs? I mean, we don't talk about pigeons or aardvarks, so why do we need to bring dinosaurs up? Well, supposedly, uh, there's 65 million years between people and dinosaurs. But in Genesis, it says God created critters, and then a day later, he created people. Hmm. There's a little difference there. A day or 65 million years. And people like to quote that Bible scripture all the time. Well, to God, a thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand. That's not what that's talking about. That is not what that's talking about. That is not invitation to add millions of years into the book of Genesis. That's just like God does not operate on your time schedule, is what that means. Uh, so 65 million years, that's the problem. Everybody just thinks man and dinosaurs could not have possibly lived together. Nobody ever drew a T-Rex on a cave wall. That's a problem. 
I mean, if we were to think people and dinosaurs ever lived together. And if the flood wiped out everything, but God preserved every kind of critter on earth and Noah put them on the boat, then that means Noah must have put dinosaurs on the boat if we're going to believe the creation story. Like God created critters and then a day later he created man. Adam named all the animals. That should include dinosaurs, logically. And then when the flood wiped everything out, Noah would have had to put dinosaurs on the ark. But that seems problematic. I mean, I watched Jurassic Park. I don't want to put one of those on an ark with me. Okay, yeah, right. So we'll get into that. First, how do you put dinosaurs on an ark? This is an easy one. What's that? Carefully. Carefully. That's the answer. Okay, moving on. I would ship a baby dinosaur if I was going to take a dinosaur with me. If I'm going to take a rhinoceros with me, if I'm going to take, we've got cows, if I'm going to take a Angus bull with me, I'm going to take a calf. You ever messed with a bull? You've heard of that. You mess with the bull, you get the horns. Even if they don't have horns, they are a force to be reckoned with. I would not take an adult one. I'd take a little one. But what if the baby dies? Uh, God told me to take that one, so I think I'm okay. I'd take the baby. I'm going to guess baby brontosaurus is still big, but that's okay. It's entirely reasonable to think that all those critters went on the ark. In fact, they built an entire museum just to prove that point. You can go. It's in Kentucky. I've been. It's awesome. It's estimated Noah would have only needed to take about 6,700 animals on the ark. That includes all the extinct species. Because you don't need two bulldogs and two bull mastiffs and two wolves and two chihuahuas. You take two dogs. Because the Bible says he took animals in their kind. Two cats, two dogs, two chickens, two brontosauruses. It's all you need. Some critters he took more of. Read Genesis. It's in there. But he only needed those couple of critters for each one, and he only needed one of a kind. All of the dog species, all of the cat species, all of the, that we see today came from genetic diversity after the flood. That's not hard to imagine. I mean, do Punnett squares in biology class, and you can figure that out. You know, a long-haired dog and a short-haired dog can give birth to dogs that are only short hair, and they'll produce short-haired dogs, and these will produce long-haired dogs, and the long-haired dogs go where it's cold because it's more comfy, and then they produce more long-haired dogs, and eventually you get all these different genetic offspring. That's reasonable. Even in a few thousand years, that could happen. So I would have taken baby dinosaurs on the ark. Um, just, just take the babies. And that is perfectly reasonable. And again, go, go, go to the Ark Museum. It's awesome. They go through the process of explaining, this is where the big critters go. Here's how he fit them all in. Here's how they feed all these critters. Here's how they deal with the refuse from all these critters. Here's how they bring fresh air into the boat. You could do a whole night just on that. And it's really fascinating. It's awesome stuff. I highly recommend you go. Um, and we may talk about it one night. Okay, so we got it. Noah could have conceivably put dinosaurs on the ark. Cool. But I've still never seen anybody draw a T-Rex on a cave wall, so that's interesting. Okay, that is interesting. I've never seen a panda bear on a cave wall either. So not all creatures would be represented on cave walls, but we would expect at some point, somebody, if human beings and dinosaurs were on the planet at the same time, somebody drew a dinosaur somewhere, right? Yes, here's one. 
It's a mosaic. It was made in 100 BC in central Italy. That's a dinosaur. What else could that be? I can't think of another reasonable explanation for what that critter is supposed to be. It looks just like a dinosaur to me, and it doesn't look like anything else. And if your first thought is, okay, yeah, but I've seen like old medieval books that have like unicorns in them. So I don't know that just because somebody made a mosaic, I'm bi- what if this is like Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them first edition? You know, like J.K. Rowling's great, 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 great grandchild's fantasy uh, mosaic. No, no, no. If you look at the rest of this mosaic, there's a lot of really cool, different creatures, but they're all real. Stuff that we've seen before. Pythons, hippos, peacocks, camels, monkeys, every single critter on that mosaic is real. And then also, well, yeah, there's a dinosaur, of course, in the creek, because that's where the dinosaur lives. Huh. Why don't we see more dinosaurs in cave art or ancient art? Oh, I think we do. Here's the problem. Do you recognize this dinosaur? Usually there's a kid in the room who's like, that's a triceratops, that's a T-Rex, that's a... Kids always know they're dinosaurs. This is not a dinosaur. That's why you don't recognize it as a dinosaur. Does anybody happen to know what that actually is? That would be a stretch. It's a real critter, and you've seen one before. It's a hippopotamus. At right is a hippo skull. At left is a hippo. They don't bear much resemblance one to the other. If I saw a hippo skull, I would never assume it was a hippo. Every once in a while, a baleen shark will, or a baleen whale will wash up. You saw earlier the little hind limb guy. I don't know if you paid much attention to its head. Its head looks like a giant beak. The first few times that baleen whales washed up on shore and their bodies rotted and all was left was a skeleton, people were like, whoa, it's some sort of crazy like bird demon critter thing because it looks like it's got this giant bony beak. But actually, it's just a whale. It's just the bones look weird. The bones look so different. Uh, there was something that washed up one time, and they thought it was the Jersey Devil, which is supposedly a mythical creature that lives in New Jersey. And it's like kind of like El Chupacabra or something like that. It's like this little critter that supposedly kills people's livestock and house pets and stuff. Because it did. I mean, the thing that washed up looked like a demon. It looked awful. And then somebody came along and said, yeah, that's a raccoon. Apparently, raccoon skeletons are like nightmare fuel, if you see, especially if they're like half rotted and on the beach. So uh, I guess that raccoon had a bad day. Here's my point, the, the reason why I'm showing you the skull. We don't find cave art of a T-Rex or a velociraptor like we saw in Jurassic Park, but that doesn't mean you've never seen a painting or a drawing or a representation of a dinosaur because dinosaurs probably don't look like what is in Jurassic Park. Because when artists make dinosaurs, let's go back to this one. This is what they do to dinosaurs. They always stretch the skin really tight over the skeleton. They give them no fat. They give them no extra tissue. They don't give them ears. They don't give them, you know, whatever. Usually their teeth are like sticking out of their jaw like this hippo is. They never have lips. Well, what critter looks like that? I've seen somebody had done this. They were doing an apologetics thing and they're like, now that they know that, some dinosaurs had feathers. They're coming up with these weird ones, and there was one, it looks like this crazy monkey critter, and it's got like a tuft of feathers sticking off its elbow. It's like, 
Who came up with that idea? Like, that's completely ridiculous. What animal have you ever seen with a tuft of feathers off of its elbow? If you just have license to fantasize about what a critter might be, you can come up with a lot of crazy things. Probably dinosaurs looked more like kind of boring, ordinary critters that we're used to seeing, and there probably are paintings of them. We don't even recognize what they are. This is an elephant, but it does not look like an elephant without its big floppy ears and its big trunk. And if human beings had never seen an elephant before, what would we draw? Its feet look like claws, not like trash cans. But we know elephant feet look like trash cans. Well, if we'd never seen one, it'd be mighty hard to artistically depict one correctly. So, I'm not surprised. And while we're on the topic, we already talked about that. You ever heard of a dragon before? You know every culture on earth pretty much has a story about dragons or something like a dragon. Well, what do you think that is? Everybody on earth conveniently and independently invented the idea of some giant critter that is scary and lives in a cave somewhere and don't go near it because it'll eat your face off. Well, that's a dinosaur. China called them dragons. Mesoamericans called them, called, you know, they've got Quetzalcoatl, which was a big, like, lizard thing that's super scary. The Norse uh, culture has Jormander, which is this serpenty kind of thing. Poland had a, it's called the Walwal dragon, which would eat your sheep. You had to watch out for it. Uh, England has the wyvern, which is a traditional kind of dragon like we've seen before, but with four legs and wings. Um, in Sumeria, ancient Sumeria had a critter called Kur, which is essentially a big serpent, like a sea serpent. Here in America, the thunderbird, the phoenix. What's the difference between a pterodactyl and a thunderbird? Feathers. Feathers don't leave any bone behind. So if we dug up a pterodactyl, how would we know that's not a thunderbird? So maybe they saw pterodactyls. It just, they didn't look like pterodactyls. They look like really big eagles or something. Much less interesting, I know. It kind of ruins our childhood and all those cool pictures that we saw in those books. But probably, they just looked a lot more like stuff we've seen before. And look, there's a drawing of a dinosaur. Do you think that Native Americans just made this thing up whole cloth and that five different Native American cultures invented the same bird? Or is it likely that they just saw a dead gum big bird and it's just not around anymore because they hunted it to extinction or because it couldn't survive in that environment anymore? I bet the Chinese saw dragons. They just weren't fire-breathing dragons, okay? They were like big, you know, dinosaurs, probably. I like this. Scientists find soft tissue in 75 million years. Wow! I want whatever technology saved that for the food I put in my refrigerator. Because I pulled some Parmesan cheese out this afternoon. It was moldy and ruined. And they're keeping soft tissue for 75 million years. I want that product at my house right now. Do you really think that that tissue lasted for 75 million years? Did you know there used to be a rule in biology that DNA can only last 200,000 years or something? I'm making the number up because I don't remember. They had a rule. DNA cannot last any longer than this. And they had a good basis for that rule. This particular material will break down in this period of time. Oh, oh, we found a dinosaur with soft tissue. Well, then we got to go change all the rules. I don't think... Soft tissue lasts 75 million years. 
I think dinosaurs are just a lot newer than we think they are. This is a description from How Stuff Works here. Soft tissue fossilization is rare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would be. Soft tissue fossil, those terms don't go together. However, due to decomposition, or because of decomposition in scavengers, that's why you don't find them. In most cases, dinosaur meat just wound up in some other critter, you know, because they ate it or it rotted. Then in some instances, sediment covered it up and allowed fossilization to begin. Not surprisingly, soft tissue occurs most often in creatures that lived in sediment like the trilobite, a seafloor anthropod. Large land animals like dinosaurs would have to suffer a rare catastrophic burial, such as, I don't know, a global flood. Well, they didn't say that. I'm sorry, a landslide. Okay, whatever. Your landslide's my global flood. I think that there is going to be some soft tissue found because I think some critters died not all that long ago, just a few thousand years ago, well within the realm of DNA surviving, and they were buried in a flood, and they were buried in all that sediment. That makes a lot of sense. I can believe that. Here's another little issue. So according to naturalists, there's 65 million years between human beings and dinosaurs. But look at this rock. This rock comes from Glen Rose, Texas. Glen Rose, Texas is either like the coolest place on earth or the site of like the greatest hoax ever conspired by man because um, that's a, one of these places where you find human footprints and dinosaur footprints in the same rock. Now, this particular one is the best example I can find. And the best thing I have read for a naturalist explanation of this is that human footprint is not a human footprint. It's just distorted by when the dinosaur stepped in the mud and you can see how it kind of squished the mud between its toes. It's giving us the impression that kind of looks like a human foot, but that's totally not a human foot. Looks like a human foot to me. And that's not the only one. There's more like it. My wife has been there. She went to Glen Rose, Texas and saw some of these things and has video of her walking in a shallow creek and you can see the human footprints and the dinosaur footprints. And according to the guy who owns the farm where those prints were, Nova showed up. That's the PBS documentary people. And they looked and they brought their camera crew and they're like, nothing to see here. And they left without filming anything. Interesting. They filmed it because they thought it was really cool, but Nova didn't see any value in those things. It's interesting. Clashes with their worldview. Okay. There's a lot of other examples of things like this, human footprints and dinosaur footprints. Uh, there's examples of things like that confirm that the earth must not be as old as they think it is. Like, um, I know Dale's given me a picture before of like, they break open a, a rock of coal and there's a hammer inside of it, like a fairly modern hammer. Uh, there was a piece of coal that they broke open and there's like a brass bell inside of it. The reason why I haven't included any of those things in the presentation is simply because there's so much back and forth about it that I haven't seen it with my own eyes and I can't say for sure what it is or what the deal is because everybody's like picking that stuff apart. I believe that's probably true. I believe somebody broke open a rock of coal and there was a bell inside because I don't think coal takes millions of years to form. But I can't prove it and there's enough stuff that people are saying to detract away from that that I just not going to go there. If you want to see that stuff, it's out there. It's just the sites that you'll find it is not the best, most credible places to go. And so I'm trying to stick to stuff that is a little bit more ironclad, but I honestly believe that that stuff is probably accurate and true. I'm just not sharing it.
Okay, so final question for the night. How old is the earth? And this is pretty quick, so I'm doing pretty good. I got five minutes left. I'm not going to get it done in five minutes, but I'm not going to go over real bad. Okay, how old is the earth? Because our science textbook at school tells me it's 100 million, billion, trillion years old or whatever. But the Bible seems to paint the picture of about 6,000 years. So there's a bit of a gap there. Let's look. How do we know that the earth is really old anyway? So this is the geologic column. You'll find this in your book on page 39. The only rocks that can be dated, I put in big air quotes, are igneous rocks. And if you remember geology class, igneous rocks are formed by cooling lava. Because of the chemical structure of a cooled lava rock, there's a, an, an isotope of something, I forget what it is, that's in there. And they think they know, natural scientists think they know, how long it takes for that particular material to decay. It's called a half-life. In a, in, in a certain amount of time, it will decay a certain amount. And so by looking at how much decay has happened in that particular element in the rock, they can tell how old the rock is. Okay, so we tell how old they tell how old. Science tells how old a rock is if it is igneous. If it is not igneous, then the way to tell is if it's close to an igneous rock. If it's lower in the dirt than an igneous rock, then it's older. If it's above it, then it's younger. And then you just got to wait to find your next, next igneous rock to figure out what's in between. You want to know a fun fact? The entire process for dating the rocks was invented before any dating methods were invented. That's interesting. We didn't have radiocarbon dating or radiometric dating or magnas something stratigraphy, whatever it's called, when they originally came up with this graphic. They created the science to support it after they'd already dated everything from their head. Now, I do believe that scientists are gauging their, their measuring tools on something they believe to be true, that this material takes this long to decay and therefore it must be this, this old. But they are assuming that the world today operates exactly the same way it was operating 100 million years ago and that everything is a constant rate. But if you're the person who's telling me that that rock's been here for a billion years and you've only been observing it for what, like 40? In 40 years, you know what it's been doing for a billion years? I'm not even willing to say that I know what it was doing and I only think it was here for 6,000 years. That's a pretty cocky statement. To me, it seems like it. it's kind of like all this climate change stuff. Well, the climate is changing. How do you know? We've been keeping climate data for like 80 years. Just because the weather's warmer than it was 25 years ago, that doesn't mean anything. A long-range climate, this could be perfectly normal. How would you know we haven't been keeping climate data that long? So... We tell how old a rock is. If it's igneous, we know how old it is. If it's not igneous, we know based on how close it is to an igneous rock. How do you date a dinosaur bone? What rock layer is it in? That's the only way to tell. There's nothing in a dinosaur bone that you can date, except for the DNA, but now we're finding that the DNA is apparently has unlimited shelf life. That's new. Convenient. Hmm, that's interesting. 
date the dinosaur bone by the rock. If we find a rock and it's nowhere near an igneous rock, but it has a dinosaur bone in it, well, we know how old that dinosaur bone is because on the other side of earth, we found that in a layer of rock that's 200 million years ago, 200 million years old. So that rock is 200 million years old. Do you see, like, you ever watch Looney Tunes and Wile E. Coyote like runs way off the edge of the cliff and there's nothing under his feet, and he, but he's still going because he doesn't know there's no ground yet. And then, right? That's where we're at. We've based this science on something we don't really know, and then we don't really know, and we're way out here somewhere. This relies upon this, which relies upon this, which relies upon this, and none of it's based on anything that we really know. If one thing is wrong all the way back in the chain, the whole thing crumbles. And I think the DNA and the soft tissue that we're finding in dinosaurs is enough to bring this house of cards down. But we're not willing to admit it yet. It all hinges on these decay rates. Here's what's interesting. We find all the T-Rexes in this Jurassic layer, but we don't find any like half sea creature, half T-Rexes in the layer below it. And we don't find any half T-Rexes, half giant hornhead dinosaur, Cretaceous thing in between. All the changes are sudden. All of these dinosaurs are right here. All of these are right here. And there's no transition in between. That's interesting. Hmm. Why is that? Now, you have to humor me for a moment. This is, this is the scientific perspective played out. They need transition fossils. They don't have them. All the T-Rexes are here. All the hornhead dinosaurs are here, but there's no half. All the monkeys are here. All the people are here, but there's no half monkey, half person. So we have to make up transition fossils if we can't find them. Not we don't have to, they have to. Natural scientists have to make them up. So they found a bone and they said, oh, this bone is the oldest and most primitive whale ever discovered. It's an important transitional form because it shows us that mammals became whales and then whales, you know, became whales. It's really good. This is important. This is a very big discovery. That's what they found. Now, the part in white is what they found. The part in gray is what the artist drew in based on what they found. So what they found was the top of a skull and a piece of a jaw. And they drew from that top of a skull and that piece of a jaw, this entire creature, which has never been seen before. That's some creative license. That is what that skull actually belongs to. I don't know what that is. Some sort of rat dog? I'm sure it's from Australia. If it's creepy, it's from Australia. In 2001, they figured out what that skull actually belonged. You know what? Not a whale. Not a transition whale. It's a rat dog or whatever the thing is. You see what I'm getting at? You can make some pretty big like steps out into nothing when you don't, when all you have to go on is your guesswork. And all of this stuff is guesswork. The same guy that wrote the book about this whale creature said this, science emerged from a philosophically motivated inquiry into the nature of our world, and it has usurped, which means conquered and stood on top of, some of the mystery formerly included in religion. Don't worry, you don't have to make up gods anymore. We've got this all figured out. 
my confidence level is high. We're good. We're in good hands. Dr. Philip Gingrich has got it all figured out. He mistook a whale for a rat dog, but he's got it figured out. Another fun little fact here. You've probably heard of a coelacanth before. Those have been extinct for 65 million years, and then somebody caught one with a pole, a fishing pole, in 1938. And now they find them all the time in nets. When they pull up fish, they pull up coelacanths. And I've got lots of examples of creatures that have been dead for 100 million years, and then they find one. There's a tree that went went extinct 268 million years ago. Oh, but there's one in California. Missed that one. And all kinds of different things. Here's what I think happened. The geologic layers are real. The bones in the layers are real. But they're not evidence of 500 million years of life. They're evidence of a flood. All the critters at the bottom are sea life that lives really, really deep in the ocean. If you've read Genesis, it says, not all the rain that flooded the earth fell from the sky. The fountains of the deep broke up. What do you think the water from the deep is like? I bet it's really hot because I bet it's around the earth's mantle. And so it's like super, super hot water that would like kill ocean life, like boil it. And so the fountains of the deep break up And the first critters to have problems are the ones real close to the fountains of the deep. So they get buried first. And then shallow sea life starts to die and fall and be buried because the warm water expanding from the fountains kills them. And then they drift down and then they die. And then really big, really stupid critters like T-Rexes and Brontosauruses who can't get away and can't climb a tree and can't find enough higher ground, die. And then all the way up at the top, you have intelligent mammals and smaller critters that were smart enough to find shelter, to find a high place, and they're the last ones that get buried. Makes sense. It also makes sense why we have so many fossils. I've been hunting deer for like my whole life. I've never found a deer skeleton in the woods. Never. I go metal detecting all the time. I dig holes in the ground all the time, in the woods. Never found a deer skeleton in the ground. Never. What happens to deer skeletons? Deer die, don't they? What happens? Critters eat them. Mice chew them. Squirrels chew the bones. Something drags them off, scatters it all out. How did all these dinosaurs get buried? I think they got buried in a flood. That makes sense. This makes sense to me. One last little thought before we close here. This is kind of a cool support for a young earth, a young universe, in fact. About every 30 years, a star goes supernova, explodes. It just runs out of juice and its fission reaction, just cataclysmic failure, and it just bursts out in all directions. We can look up at the sky and say, there's the residue of a supernova and there's a residue of a supernova. We now believe that today there are 10 to the 22nd power stars in the universe. That's a lot. The number of supernova we should have observed. If the universe has been here for 300 billion years or whatever the Big Bang says, there should be residue in the sky of millions of supernova. To date, we have found 205, which works out at the constant rate that we see supernova today, 
to 6,100 years, which is exactly what the Bible says is the age of the earth, you know, reasonably speaking. I mean, not exact to the year because we don't know. 6,150 year timeline to look at the supernova in the sky. That's a pretty good dating method. I mean, it's as good as anything we've got. Oh, and you know, the infallible word of God also says that, which is pretty handy. There's so much evidence that the earth is younger than we thought it was, and that all this stuff actually matches what the Bible said perfectly. And the scientific, quote unquote, explanations just don't really hold up to scrutiny. I'm gonna put my faith in the word of God. It stands the test of time a heck of a lot better, right? Okay, so last thing, no more presentation, but if you're on page 42 and 43 of your book, because we were just on page 39, so you're pretty close, you'll notice I have 10 assumptions of evolution. I cut that out of the presentation for time because pretty much all of it is a repeat of stuff I've already told you. Um, there's a couple blanks here, though, that I would like to fill in for you so you're not leaving with uh, unfinished business. Obviously, for evolution, scientists take it for granted. That's number one. Number two, they assume that evolution is universal and explains absolutely everything, even though it's never been proven. So you got two blanks there. We have never blanket, but we assume it occurs blank for everything. What you want to fill in is we have never observed it. We've never observed it. But we assume it occurs all the time for everything. We've never seen one critter turn into another critter, ever. But we assume that's the explanation for everything. They assume there's no God. They assume that the only source of truth is the study of matter. But that matter just exists for no apparent reason. We covered that. They assume it's possible to go from simple to complex, low life form to high life form, even though that's never been observed. Look at number seven. The driving forces of evolution are mutation, selection, and isolation. In other words, for one critter to become another critter, it must have genetic mutations over time, and those mutations add up, and it eventually becomes a completely different species. But the blank... 99% of genetic mutations are harmful, according to scientist H.J. Miller. We can lose genetic information, but we cannot gain it. You may have heard of before, there are bacteria that are invading people's bodies now that we don't have antibiotics for. They're kind of scary. They have evolved to not die in the presence of antibiotics but they have not improved. Scientists have looked into those, because a lot of people thought, ooh, ooh, this is it, this is the answer to evolution, this is the thing we've been looking for. And so they look in there and they find, oh, it isn't so much that the bacteria have learned to beat antibiotics, which sounds awesome, but rather they forgot that they're supposed to die when this thing happens. I'm simplifying, but that's basically what it is. They've actually lost genetic information. In this case, it just so happens to make it easier for them to survive. But it is still a loss of information. It is not gaining information. It does not explain how monkeys became people. Genetic mutations, the blank there is, never produce new genetic information. Notice on number eight, there's no plan or purpose to evolution. It's all just random. 
The past must have operated exactly as the present, which we couldn't possibly know that. They say the Grand Canyon must be 10 million years old because it erodes at a rate of 0.015 millimeters per year right now. What if it rained more a different year? What if it, like, I don't know, flooded the whole earth one time? Ho, ho, okay. Number 10, there was a smooth transition from non-life to life, even though that totally defies every law we have. How is it that the scientific explanation of the origin of life requires defying observed rational science? And here's why. And this is the last blank, and I love leaving it this way because I think this really puts a, a crown on it. Naturalism isn't science. It's a religion without a God. That's all it is. It's a religion without a God. Because a religion is a faith-based system. You gotta have faith in this thing because it doesn't make sense. Or you could have faith in this thing, which I'm a fan of, and I think that's what you wanna do. Okay, so I am 15 minutes over my time. My wife is telling me I have a text message. Oh, 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 yes, yes, thank you. Thank you. I thought of that earlier and I just went right over it. She said, are there dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? Yes, yes, there are. They don't call them dinosaurs. Of course not. I told you last time, oldest book in the Bible is Job. Yeah, very good. Um, somebody was paying attention. Job mentions two dinosaurs, Leviathan and Behemoth. Surprise, surprise. The oldest book in the Bible talks about giant almost mythologically huge creatures that we've never seen before and no other Bible book talks about them because they probably became much less common over time. Job talks about them because Job was alive and saw them, behemoth and Leviathan, and asked. And there's a lot of explanations like, oh, well, this is actually talking about a whale. This is talking about a squid. This is talking about a rhinoceros. No, it is not. There is, if you look at what Job said about behemoth and Leviathan, and I could do a whole probably night on that too, um, they don't match any living creature that we know. Behemoth actually matches pretty closely a brontosaurus. Says his tail is like a cedar. He's got a tail like a tree. Okay, yeah, I can see that being brontosaurus. It's definitely not a rhinoceros. A rhinoceros tail is like that big. An elephant tail is like that big. He ain't talking about an elephant. He ain't talking about a rhinoceros. I don't know a land critter with a tail like a like a cedar, but I've seen pictures of them. I watched Jurassic Park. <laughs> they might've got that one right. Um, okay, so that is that. Now, again, on your chairs there, there's a piece of paper for um, questions. Uh, I'm not, I don't have a problem with continuing to field questions too. I mean, it's 15 minutes past. Uh, that's no issue to me. It might be an issue to you. Uh, I don't know what your time schedule's like, but I, I don't see why we couldn't at least take 10 minutes. I did have one good question that was asked before this started, um, and that was, and it's not related to any of this apologetics type stuff, but I think it's a good question. And it is, why in the Bible, you know, you read the Old Testament and God is like wrathful God, like open up the ground and swallow people for disobeying, um, strike people dead for touching the Ark of the Covenant. And now we have like loving, kind Jesus God. So I thought God was the same yesterday and today and forever. So how come Old Testament God seems like lightning bolt Zeus kind of God and Jesus God is like much more loving and forgiving? And that is a good question. Now, first off, 
we are probably in our own minds oversimplifying God a little bit. Um, I think God absolutely still brings judgment on people groups. I think we see that all the time. I think that we as a nation are cruising for a bruising if we don't get our act straightened out because we've seen civilizations fall when they drift really far into thinking too much of themselves. The Tower of Babel led to a destruction of a people group. They got cocky. They put up an image to talk about how great they were and God punished them for it. We read the Bible and you see verse five and then verse 15 and to us, that's just 10 verses, but that might cover 250 years of time. We've only been a country for 250 years. So I think our time scale is different and I think God still is a God of judgment and a God of justice. We do see his mercy more and I think Dennis did a good job of kind of indirectly answering that question this morning. In the Old Testament, God was preparing us through the law to understand just how really wretched and awful and evil human beings are. And we are now living in the period of God's story. And I don't say that to mean that it's not true. I'm saying the the way God decided to orchestrate this thing, that we get to see more of his grace because Jesus has already died and taken the punishment for our sins. And so I think we see that a little bit more. But the wrath of God... If we live long enough, we're going to see it. It's coming. Uh, and it will destroy this world in fire. I mean, we know that that's going to happen. Um, so I think that that justice God is, A, still very much available. But we also got to think like God in the Old Testament, he speaks to people. He wrote on tablets. We don't see him doing that anymore. Well, again, we're living in a different dispensation of time. For Israel, there is no Jesus and they don't know what the Holy Spirit is. The only manifestation of God they see to prove to them that God is real is an actual physical manifestation of God. He shows up in a pillar of cloud. He shows up in a pillar of fire. He speaks from heaven, or he sends an angel to speak for him. Typically is how that works. He writes on a tablet with a piece of stone, but, or writes with his finger on a stone tablet, is what I meant to say. But then God sent Jesus and we saw God in flesh. We don't need a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. We have already seen. And it kind of makes me think of the story of the rich man and Lazarus when uh, the rich man is down in torment in hell and he looks up and he sees Lazarus who was a poor beggar enjoying the glories of heaven while he is enduring the tortures of hell. And he says, I know there's no bailing me out of this, but hey, would you please send somebody to earth to warn my family about hell? They've already been warned. If they're not gonna listen to the prophets, if they're not gonna listen to the word, if they're not gonna read the Bible, they've got all the evidence they need. I'm not gonna send a special thing just for them. Everything they need is right there in front of them. And I think that's kind of a message to us too. Jesus already came. We've seen him. He's historically significant. We covered that like three nights, three weeks ago, whatever, three apologetics nights ago. We don't need God to physically manifest himself to know that he's real. And the Holy Spirit is absolutely real. I've experienced it. And probably you have too. So you've gotten that physical manifestation of God. Is it an audible voice? No, but it's every bit as apparent and obvious. Does that answer that question? Awesome. Any other ones? I spent like five on that one. Yeah. Sure. 
Yeah, so he's bringing up the carbon dating. Like everything relies back on this carbon dating or some other dating method. I heard it illustrated like this one time. You're driving to Springfield and you pass, oh, let's say Jeff's driving Gertie. <laughs> that, that's our white van that's like, and so you pass Gertie by, and you're just at 70 miles an hour, and Jeff is putting in Gertie at five miles an hour, and you pass him at Seymour. Well, Seymour is 45 minutes down the road, and Springfield's another 45 minutes away. So you pass Jeff going five miles an hour, and you do the math, you can say, well, Jeff left at like 11 o'clock last night. But you're basing that on the, you know, you went right by him. For the five seconds you could see Jeff, he was going five miles an hour. But Gertie blew a rod like 10 minutes ago and you just didn't know it. And he was cruising along at 80 before that. How would you know? You can't estimate when Jeff left based on the speed he's going right now because you don't have all the information. You've only been watching him for that long. Yes, what you're doing is scientific. You took his speed and you applied mathematical principles and you came to a good, reliable answer, but it's wrong because he wasn't always traveling that speed. We're basing carbon dating on really good, rational science and math. We just don't know that carbon decays at a regular rate because we've only been watching it for just a little while. It could be right, but I think it's probably not because it doesn't match up with what my Bible says. So that's my thinking. Anything else? Yeah, so what's the explanation for why are there still so many monkeys? If Here's my question. Where's my tail? <laughs> like, I want a tail. Tails are awesome. Like, I wouldn't fall down as much. I could hang off of stuff. So, like, the whole concept of, like, why, why are there human beings, but there's still monkeys if we came from monkeys? Well, some of us apparently got really lucky and got some genetic... Uh, gifts given to us and gradually became human beings and other ones just didn't get those gifts and got stuck staying monkeys. So out of the dice roll of random genetic properties, we got lucky and they didn't is basically the only answer to it. But I want to know at what point did my forefathers decide that a tail was disadvantageous? I want my tail back and I want my wings. Not the little weird wings that we talked about on night one, but some biggins. I want some... No, wait, scratch that. Birds work way too hard to fly. I don't want those wings. Yeah, yeah, I'd need new lungs. And honestly, I don't even like to run, so I'm not going to like to fly unless I can do it like Superman, just like, you know, just like take off, like at will. Uh, I'm assuming it's a lot of work to fly, so forget it. I don't want it. I do want the tail, though. Okay. You would think. Yeah, where did all the half monkey people go? We've still got monkeys. We've got people. It was advantageous to evolve, but where's all the... Detritus. Where's all the half monkeys? Oh, some of them are supposed to be those Neanderthals that died because we were better than them and we like murdered them all or something. But I just don't buy that. I don't think that they were less intelligent than we are. Evidence is they were not unintelligent. We covered that. They're using medicine. They're decorating graves. They're ornamenting tools. No reason to think. We, we find all kinds of cool things that people made in the ancient world that we don't even understand now because man has always been intelligent. We've lost more than we, I bet we've 
forgotten more things than we know. Yeah, yeah, that prominent brow is not an, un, it's not an unheard of feature. You still see people with a prominent brow, a brow ridge. Yeah, we didn't evolve out of that 65 million years ago. We just don't see as much of it these days. Yeah, I agree. Okay, yes. Yeah, he was very, um, Darwin was plagued by some digestive problems um, in his life. But uh, part of his problem, too, was uh, he really was dissatisfied with the way the scientific community picked up what he had to say and ran with it. What Darwin said, what he actually published, he felt pretty strongly about. But the scientific community picked that up and took it like a thousand steps down the road, and he he himself was not real comfortable with that. Yeah, I don't think Darwin was proud of his legacy. Well, he used to be a Christian, uh-huh. and his daughter, if I remember correctly, his daughter passed yep. away, and he just got very angry and bitter at God. And Spent his life trying to disprove him after that. And so typically, a bitter person with an axe to grind is not a very good person to get us, you know, <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Yeah, if you didn't hear that, he said uh, Darwin had a, lost a daughter and was very kind of held a grudge against God for that, and that's probably not the best place to get our information about God. I've actually got an article I can share with you sometime. It's called The Church of Darwin. Um, I don't remember what it was that it said, but I remember reading it and being like, ooh, that's good, and I know I saved it. So, um, And it, it has to do with what we're talking about here. So, Okay. Anything else? Yes. Yeah. And a lot of them have, you know, made it draw through the Bible with the same name, dog, sure. versus what have you. Um, where did the, the line kind of... The, the right. When did the name fall off? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah, so that's a good question. If a dog in the Bible is still a dog today, how come a behemoth in the Bible is a dinosaur today? Like what... And it kind of the same thing about the stars, you know? At what time was Orion the name of that star? Okay, so basically, over the period of human history, we've had to translate the Bible lots and lots and lots of times because it didn't get translated from Hebrew directly into, you know, the ESV or something, right? Like, it's taken several steps. So at different steps along the way, when people have translated it into a modern language, they've taken a term that they totally knew what it meant and modernized it. So like if you read like the old like 1611 Bible, it'll use the term like awesome, which we're like awesome, but no, it's like awesome, like ooh, scary. You know, and so today when you read a modern translation of the Bible, they've taken words and they've translated them or like in Genesis, um, the original King James says, when God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, which has led some people to think, oh, well, there used to be people and then God created Adam and Eve and that was a separate creation. No, 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 no. The word replenish has just changed its meaning over time. And so if you go back to the original Hebrew word, you figure out, oh, it didn't mean to do again. It meant just plentish, (laughs) whatever, you know. 
just multiply, you know, and just fill the earth is what it meant. It meant fill the earth. It didn't mean refill the earth. So sometimes those words change meaning. So in the case of dog, we have updated whatever Hebrew word that is over the years to always mean that same creature. But at some point when we forgot what a behemoth was, we just forgot how to translate the word at some point. Like those things became extinct. People were like, what is a behemoth anyway? And so, you know, whatever that Hebrew word is just fell out of common usage. We don't have the word anymore. So that's why. And I did look into the stars a little bit, a little bit. And um, Orion definitely references Orion. And Pleiades has really remained fairly constant. What I'm curious about is, is there any connection between Maseroth and Wormwood, which is the star that falls in Revelation and wipes out some stuff on Earth? Because it said he will bring Maseroth in his season. Maybe that's what he's talking about. I don't know. They're both a feminine noun. That's all I can tell you. Oh, yeah. Canine and dog means the same thing. And sure, yeah. And in the Bible, like the term bondservant and slave are used interchangeably. They actually come from the same root word. We'll use them differently in different contexts. And so the modern translations have accounted for that. In this case, he meant slave. In this case, he meant servant. But it's the same word. So you see that a lot in the Bible. And you, that's where you have to know the people who translate the Bible really understand the language and are doing a good job with it. Anything else? Feel free to write questions down too. If, if you, and anytime you think of one, you just want to drop one to me or pop, pop by at church and be like, oh, I thought of something, you know? I will absolutely do a Q&A session at some point with, with tough questions that I don't know the answers to or ones that I haven't tackled yet or ones that I, I answered just now, but I don't really, I feel like there was more I could have said about it later or something like that. Any more? Last call. Closing time. Time for you to go on to the, okay. All right, that's good. Thank you so much for coming. I sure appreciate it. Get cookies, get coffee. Um, if you have a question you want to ask me, I'll be here. So I'm not going anywhere. Thank you. <laughs>